Hey there. Welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I want to invite you to visit the wonderful world of sobriety. You can visit our website, which is SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you can find sober tools for your sober toolbox, such as Todd's blog on how to successfully manage alcohol triggers and cravings. We also post the Rewired Podcast and the schedule for Zooms. This is where you can find all these beautiful recovery stories that we all share from our heart of our hero's journey. We also have a Facebook community, Sobertown Facebook. I want to introduce myself. My name is Viv. Some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the I Am Sober app, which we warmly know as IAS. The I Am Sober app is a daily counter that you can download in your app store. It's easy. It's free. And that's where we all met and we contribute to SobertownPodcast.com. On there, there's a community button where we can create community and connection. In addition, I'm a sober recovery coach certified in Roots of Addiction, the joys of sober recovery, and the neuroscience of addiction. I'm also a certified life coach. All you have to do to take advantage of a complimentary call with me for 30 minutes is send me your email. And you can send this email to viv at soberithrive.org. All it takes to change your life is to take the first step and schedule your confidential, complimentary call. Everyone needs a sober cheerleader. And with the SoberTownPodcast.com, we can help create the sober warrior within you. Welcome to Sobertown. I'm your guest host, Viv. Some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. I'm excited to interview Dr. Peg O'Connor, professor of philosophy specializing in feminist, social, political philosophy, and addiction studies, and author of Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Welcome, Peg, to Sobertown. Oh, thank you, Peg. Thanks for having me. I, I'm really looking forward to this. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Dr. O'Connor, I would like our listeners to know if you could please give us some of your background as you have personal experience with recovery and how it helped you write the book, Higher and Friendly Powers. Happy to do that. And I insist that you call me Peg. I always go by Peg. Um, so I'm Peg and I'm an alcoholic. I have been in recovery for a good long time now. I started young and took to it like a duck to water, became an overachiever in my drinking in high school and through college. And as a young college student, I went to my first AA meeting because that little voice inside of my head had been whisper shouting at me if you know what I mean by that, whisper shouting at me, you have a problem. I knew I had a problem. I knew I'd had a problem for years, but I didn't know what to do about it. So sort of outing myself here, um, I'll be 58. So I was in high school, late 70s, very early 80s, where in general, we didn't think about adolescent or youth addiction. I mean, we were operating with a stereotype of, oh, the alcoholic is the down on his luck guy who's homeless, who is a hobo or a bum. And I know that that's really loaded language, but I'm using it on purpose because yep. that's what the language was at the time. And so I could look at that and say, well, that's not me. I'm, so therefore I can't be an alcoholic. So I developed a good faulty logic as a young person because I would always have a comparison pool that I could look at and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. Those are the real alcoholics or addicts over there, and I'm not in that pool, so therefore I can't be an alcoholic. Bad logic, as I would go on to learn as I became a student of philosophy. But as an undergraduate, I went to my first AA meeting. So I was just 18 or 19. I honestly can't remember how old I was. And I had been raised Catholic and I'd gone to 13 years of Catholic school. So I went into that AA meeting with a whole rich catalog of Catholic beliefs about the nature of God. And I'd always been told, God is always watching you. God knows when you sin. God knows when you make mistakes. You know, God knows everything. That's what it means to be omniscient. So as I was listening to the steps, 
And then as I was listening to how it works, I wanted to run out of there like my pants were on fire because I had such a conception of God. I mean, as a young kid in elementary school, I remember being so terrified of God because I thought, oh my God, God is a peeping Tom. He sees me everywhere. We are always naked in front of God. And so there was all this shame about it. And I ran out of that AA meeting and I never went back to another AA meeting until I was nearly 20 years sober. So I'm someone who got sober without AA, without any kind of official inner outpatient treatment. And I think my trajectory is actually quite similar to the trajectory of many of us who over time change our relationship with addictive substances or processes. So this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, is written for my 18-year-old self and for everyone else who cannot square themselves with that notion of God, but who might find good benefit in AA if only they could rethink what a higher power might be. Yeah, I really loved and I found it very interesting that you point out in your book that the original term higher power was coined by William James. Can you expand on that? So when Bill Wilson sobered up for the last time in 1934, he had tried and failed repeatedly to sober up. And he had been checked in as a patient to the term of the time was asylum for the inebriate. So he had been checked into one of these drying out hospitals. And finally, around Christmas time, 1934, he's there. And this guy has pretty much lost everything. He is living with his in-laws. He's living off their generosity. It is his brother-in-law who's paying for this stint in the asylum for the inebriate. And Bill Wilson writes about being there and throwing up his hands in defiance and saying, you know, if there is a God, I'll do anything. You know, take this away from me. And he says, you know, suddenly I felt this this gust of spirit. He knew it wasn't just wind. It wasn't a draft from a window. It was this gust of spirit. And he said, and I felt my desire to drink just disappear. And he is joyful until he thinks, oh my gosh, I'm losing it. Am I hallucinating here? Which makes good sense because hallucinations can can be part of alcohol withdrawal. And one of the ways they treated alcoholism was with belladonna, that could also cause hallucinations. So there was good reason to think that he was hallucinating and none of this had happened. But he had a very good friend. His name is Ebby Thacker. And Ebby Thacker gave him William James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, that had been published in 1902. So there's a 32-year gap in there. But William James was so taken, or Bill was so taken with William James that he devoured this book and later came to say, I regard William James as a co-founder of AA because his ideas were so important. So one of the ideas that Bill took from William James was higher power. Now, William James talks about higher power in a singular, but just as often he talks about it as a plural. So higher powers and friendly powers. And William James included as higher powers Ideals such as truth or beauty, enthusiasm for humanity, patriotism, a belief in the imminent deity of all things, something more that we can't specify, but we we feel it in a kind of way. And that higher power might be out there in the world and the cosmos, but it might already be in us. And so that higher and friendly powers that you encounter in William James is so much broader and expansive and more inclusive than what you see Bill Wilson did with it. He reduced it to what he was familiar with, having been raised against a Calvinist background in Vermont, which was a Christian God. And he tried to put a qualifier on there, God, as we understood him. But that qualifier is equally loaded with assumptions about a male divinity of a certain sort. So what I want to do in this book is give examples of these higher and friendly powers. And one of the important things that James says is it could even be a better self. 
better version of yourself. Anything larger will do, he says, if it enables you to take the next step, if it enables you to become willing to do something differently. So that notion of higher power is one of James's most important ones. But with Bill Wilson, it's understandable that he reduced and described it in ways that were very familiar to him and to the other early members of AA. But what that means for those of us who come in not sharing those beliefs or having a very different relationship with Christian beliefs is we have to do kind of um, taekwondo or jujitsu to kind of block off all those expectations about what a God is. And so we're so busy blocking this that we don't actually do the work that we're there to do, or we feel like we're lying or that we're a fraud. Or, you know, as they also talk about it, that chapter to the agnostic, there's a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink there that, oh, I bet the atheist or the agnostic, they all get with the program and come to believe in God too. No, 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 no. So higher and friendly powers is anything that enables you to author your own change, to be the author of your own conversion to a better self or to different ways of living. I love that. I, I definitely, I understand that because myself in reading your book, I found so many um, mirrored qualities as understanding God. And also I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Yes. So this definitely spoke to me and, and I love the fact um, of your portion. And if you could elaborate on that, the understanding the concept of higher power at heart of 12-step program and dispelling the concept of the Christian-centric God at heart of AA, which makes the most accessible form of addiction treatment more palatable to those in need. So I ran away from AA, and I still only dip in and out of AA. I'm someone who says, I really like the people. Just about all of my closest friends are in recovery and they have gotten there through AA. But I, I still, my hands still go up um, with some of the program language. And it is an interesting question of what exactly is the AA program? Is that what we find in the big book where we find the 12 steps and how it works? And is that different from the fellowship, which is the people? And it's convenient to draw a distinction between the two, but I don't think that they are all that different because it's always individuals and meetings who are interpreting and kind of setting up the the tenor or the ethos of a particular meeting. And I have been to meetings where they say, none of that God language, you know, we're just going to pause where that word God is in the steps, or we're just going to say higher power, or we're going to say something else. And I've been to other meetings where it's very um, doctrinal almost. We always read this, we always read this, and we always close with the Lord's Prayer. Well, if, if you're not Christian, what do you do even when at the meeting they say, and everyone who would like to join us for a closing Lord's Prayer, please do. So I would enjoy it. Inevitably, someone would say to me, well, why aren't you joining us? Why do I have to explain my beliefs there? So to be spiritual is the much broader category of which to be religious is a subset of it. And what William James talks about is spirituality is part of our human nature. And spirituality can be encouraged and it can be cultivated and it can blossom and flourish in all kinds of ways. Or it can, by some religions, be squashed. It can be tamped down. And what becomes more important is dogma or doctrine rather than those spiritual impulses. So to think about the ways that the 12 steps have perhaps by importing that Christian language of God, that it functions more like dogma and doctrine, and it gets in the way of that kind of spiritual transformation that is at the heart of our changing. So if William James is right, and I happen to think that he is, that we already have everything that we need within us already. 
And sometimes what we need to do is excavate. Me, I needed to undo 13 years of Catholic school being told that I was sinful, that I was wasting my talents. So I'm, I'm out as a lesbian. I'm as queer as a $3 bill. And I knew that as a kid and I knew it in high school. And I was a raging alcoholic in high school. And I am a survivor of sexual abuse. So all these things that the Catholic school told me about who and what I was, that kind of shame that I've had to do so much scrubbing and excavating and hoeing out and getting rid of so that I can hopefully find those little tiny tendrils of spirituality. And I'm still uncovering them. And I've been sober 35 years. And maybe that's the really good news is that we always get to do this kind of work, but we get to do it on our own terms. No one has any business telling anyone else how it is that they should be doing these work. And in the best of AA, they say, these are not requirements, but they're suggestions. Take what you like and leave the rest. But that's when you run into, if you get a very doctrinaire sponsor who is somewhat, you know, orderly and by the book and, you know, sees everything as a linear progression. I don't see everything as a linear progression. It's, it's spirals. It's regression. It's progression. It's, I don't know, what would be the word for going sideways? It's side session. You know, I mean, that's. We zig and zag throughout our life. And, and sometimes the best experiences are one, on one of those crazy zigs or zags where we least expect it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. My husband, I'm very open about it. He had to find a place for himself in a porn addiction. And of course, when you match that with the doctrine of religion, it then where is the help? So then in that, he had to integrate and find the atheist part of AA, which I really, we were both surprised. And then him reading your book, myself reading your book, it inspired us because we knew that, that we know that there's a life force within us that is rooting for us, that we all have innately is what you drive in the book. This is, there's higher power and that's the the miracle of that we have within ourselves to do that change and i just loved 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 you were saying understanding and recognizing james's five stage of world sickness as forms of suffering can you please expand on that so a little bit about william james because i know oftentimes people in recovery want to know that people writing about people suffering, whatever form, mental illness, addictions, other kinds of suffering, that they have a kind of lived experience or credibility. And William James, the whole James family is, is fascinating, just to show that money does not protect you from acute suffering. But William James, his entire life struggled with what he called angst or melancholia. And those are terms that have fallen out of contemporary usage. You know, angst has been replaced by this notion of anxiety. It's an anxiety disorder. And we also talk about, instead of melancholia, we talk about clinical depression. And, and those are important terms. I'm not mocking them. But there are older terms that are so much more rich and so much more descriptive of the ways that people can suffer. So William James himself suffered with what he called the worst kind of pathological melancholia. He said, really, there are two general types of people in the world. And we're mixtures of these two types, but we tend to have a, a natural kind of point that we come to rest at. And so there are those who are sunny siders. They're naturally op optimistic. For them, the glass is always half full with something really delicious. So that's me. I'm one of those sunny siders. And then there's the people that he calls the divided or sick souls. And those are the people who are always below or they're right, they hover right around what he calls a misery threshold. He said, all of us have this threshold that we dance around. How much suffering can we take? And the optimists, like me, tend not to take a lot of emotional suffering. Well, course correct. I have become more of an optimist since being in recovery. But we'll course correct. We don't, we don't like to 
inflict suffering on ourselves, particularly when we see a way to change it and we're willing to do what we have to do. And he said, there are other people who become so comfortable with, doesn't even begin to capture, become so familiar with misery and suffering and they can tolerate so much and that elevator can keep going down. And so James came up with what he calls five stages of world sickness. So this is kind of a, a deeply personal kind of reporting on the way that people suffer. And they're not equally bad. So it's everything we now say. It's a progressive condition. So it's on a spectrum. And he says, some people begin to have a chill in their joy. Let's say they were a joyful person, but the shine comes off something. So, you know, for a variety of reasons that um, a few more things start going wrong or they no longer love doing the same things that they always do. They, they like them less. And joy chilled is something that, that I can change, though, within myself. I might decide to recommit to something or I might say, you know what? I loved playing that sport for the first 40 years of my life, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else. I'm going to go off in different directions. The, the issue is with me and my attitude. So there's joy chilled. The next phase, so moving down or in the progression, is joy destroyed. I just don't like those things anymore. Things that I used to love, I just don't like that. I don't care anymore. I don't get anything out of it. And that can be really alienating to a person when you realize, I don't like doing any of those things anymore. Who am I when I don't like those things? But even that one, James says, that's manageable by my inner attitude. I might, again, recognize it's true if I don't enjoy those things, but I'm also finding I'm enjoying these other things over here. So it's about kind of taking inventory and stock of what your interests are and oftentimes having to rebalance them, which we do all the time anyway. But then James says, things start getting worse in a significant kind of way. Sort of the next phase is what he calls anhedonia. That is just a fancy word that means no pleasure or no joy. I just can't generate any of it at all. You know, I can't kind of rev myself up to get excited about something. And then there's active anguish where I start worrying about everything in the world. Everything in the world is going to be a source of disappointment, a source of grievance, a source of loss. So I'm always kind of on that defense waiting for that slight to come in, or I sent this email and I know she's probably going to just say no to it. So you're, you're putting all that negative energy out there in the world, but you're also kind of bringing in and anticipating all the negativity in the world out there. So the wrongness or the, the lack is both a person's attitude, but more you're starting to see the world as kind of a hostile place. And the worst stage of this is what he calls a panic fear, where all the other stages are there and everything about the world is utterly alien and hostile. And you're always full of foreboding. And William James landed at that panic fear as a young college graduate. Actually, he was older than that. He'd gone to medical school at that point. And he seriously contemplated suicide. And he had been uh, working in an asylum, again, the language of the time, a lunatic asylum. He's working there and he recognizes himself in one of his patients. He says, that shape of mind. So someone who's nearly just in a catatonic state of rocking back and forth, James says, I'm no different from that person. That's, that's me in a different kind of way. So he hit his, his lowest point and James made a decision so he went into his internal resources to say, I need to believe that what I do matters. I need to believe that I've got some free will here. I've got choice. And it isn't just world coming down on me because that's fate or destiny. I can do some things differently. And am I willing? Yes, I'm willing to do some things differently. So William James knows what he's talking about when he talks about that kind of acute suffering. And he had a couple of, I don't like the word relapse, but he had a couple of times in his life when he sank back down again and had to pull himself back up. And so James, in many ways, was one of those sick souls 
but he also had great joy in his life too. It's knowing yourself and knowing what those balances are and knowing when you might be heading down and places that are too familiar to you. Yeah, definitely. I found it in the book that exact example, very understandable with the example that you put of the sports player and the sports player. He's playing sports. He's at, at the height of his career. And then all of a sudden he breaks a leg. He can no longer play. But meanwhile, he's been at the height of his career. Everybody's been handling his finances, his everything, every detail and every aspect of his life. Now he can no longer play. So who is he? Who is he? He has lost everything. He has lost the activities around which his identity turned. And people regarded him, he's the all-star. He regarded himself as the all-star. Or that, yes, people would always be there to help or to, you know, have all of his needs both anticipated and met. And what a kind of come down for someone when they have that pulled out from under them, particularly when it's unexpected and unwanted. Right. And I saw the mirror of myself in that, in pulling out the alcohol out of my 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 existence and then having to come to the you know epiphany how am i going to live without alcohol because i was the all-star <laughs> in my mind till i was you know i'm an all-star <laughs> till i wasn't and then all of a sudden having that epiphany okay now who am i without the alcohol and then your book mirrors that I I mean it resonated so much with me because then I thought to myself and now I'm at this point I'm that grateful alcoholic in which I found that joy of I never want alcohol in my life again so the all-star makes as you put put it in the book makes that choice that he either either can see that he's nothing without being the all-star or he can create something else anew. Yes. It, and that's, I think, horrifying to a lot of us to think that, oh my gosh, we can create ourselves because we did such a crappy job creating ourselves before. Okay. So now we're on to Viv 2.0 or PEG 2.0. And we maybe don't have a lot of confidence in what we could do. And in fact, we bet the exact opposite. We assume we're going to screw it up. You know, we're going to mess it up again. And so to think about the fact that when I give up alcohol or drugs or other behaviors, there's kind of an important turning point where we go from saying, well, I can't drink anymore, or I can't use drugs, or I can't gamble anymore. I can't, I can't, I can't. That's that kind of negative. I can't. To now I get to. Or now I don't have to worry about the hangovers. Now I don't have to worry about the recrimination. Now I don't have to worry about, my God, what the hell did I say when I was in that blackout? I don't have to do that anymore. And instead, I get to do all these other things. That's why when William James talks about when someone changes, he's got this wonderful expression, habitual center of personal energy. This is in 1902. So this sounds like something you would read on a positive psychology blog, you know, habitual center of personal energy. That's what changes when a person undergoes a conversion or a significant change, where he said, yes, they're reborn in some ways. You become a new person, but that language of reborn has been so freighted and now goes along to what I might point to as fundamentalist Christianity. The other language that Jane uses, you can be rejuvenated. You can be regenerated. You can be transformed. And that all of those things are made possible because you have made or found or discovered a higher power already within you, or you are, you are finding it with others. So one of the other ways that I talk about, you know, what is it like to be in continuity with this higher power and not have it feel like, well, that's really woo-woo, or I can't even imagine what you're talking about there. Um, 
I love music and I have absolutely no musical ability. Let me say that straight off the bat. But what I love are harmonies. That a harmony is so much more than just two voices put together. It becomes something different. There's a reason why monks would chant, why other religions have chants. Something happens when you have voices together in a kind of way. You do feel this kind of connection that you wouldn't otherwise. And James says, and that's the continuity of that, of that friendly power. And there's nothing mysterious or overly woo-woo about that, that we can have that kind of harmony, even of opposite. And we feel a part of it when we feel connected to it. Because one of the things about addiction, one of the ways I understand it, is that you lose yourself. You lose yourself to the alcohol, the other drugs, behaviors. Maybe you started later in life, so you lost, you know, your reputation, your goodwill, your standing and all that. Maybe if you started young, you never really had a fully developed self to lose. But when you... When you are transformed, when you undergo that kind of conversion in a kind of way, you find and get to make a new self. And what an utterly mind-boggling and sacred thing that we get to do. It's both mundane, it's all these things we do every day, but it is also so sacred and solemn. And some of us have the great joy of doing that in collaboration or in communion, to use an even kind of stronger term. We, we do that in communion with other people. And that's what AA can be at its best. People doing that, people doing that together. That's AA at its best. So as much as I kind of want to offer a corrective to Bill Wilson got this important concept wrong, it's more of an invitation for people to explore on their own what could be a higher power for me and how can I put that to work? Because ultimately, that's what James says a higher power is. It's putting yourself to work in a kind of way. And I can get behind that. I'm a worker bee. A lot of people who come into recovery are worker bees. Definitely, we all share that, that same trait, so to say. So, no, I, I, I understand and I'm with you on every aspect that you're talking about. Because, like, I, AA did not work for me as well. And, but I did find community. And that oh, yeah. was what, you know, Sober Town and everything has, has given me. And in community, working for something bigger than myself. And that is what you, your book speaks about, you know, that you find joy within yourself and that higher communion. And that connection as you talk about it. So that's, I wanted to also ask you the question, why there must be multiple paths out of addiction and no one is the best or right path? Absolutely. Positively, we know that each person's addiction is unique because our personal experience is unique and that different Substances have different trajectories to becoming addictive. They have different effects. And that, are there some common denominators between addiction? I'm going to leave that to the neuroscientists and the, and the physicians to figure out for me. But there are infinite ways that people become addicted. And so there need to be an equal number of ways out of addiction. And I think that there has been a belief that there's perhaps only one or two real ways out of addiction. And one of them may be AA. AA has been around for the longest time. And AA was not subjected to kind of sociological longitudinal studies about success rates. And that the 12-step model is the dominant treatment model in most in and outpatient treatment programs. And there are some people within AA when I went to AA after 20 years, people treated me like I was a polka dot unicorn. What? You got sober without AA? What? You have been to one meeting in your entire life? And, you know, they were looking at me like maybe I was a little sketchy. You know, was I telling the truth or something like that? And 
you know, for me, it's always a matter of what works for a particular person. So that AA works for so many people. I'm so, so profoundly grateful for AA that it works for so many of us who suffer. For those of us for whom it doesn't work, what are other kinds of ways of, of proactively engaging with it? I'm not going to say treating, that there are, but there are different treatment modalities. And for some, individual counseling might work. For others, they want more of a pastoral counseling. Some will need medication-assisted therapies. Is harm reduction preferable to total abstinence? I say, well, it depends. It depends upon the particular person and their life setting, their life context. And I am going to take methadone or suboxone for the win for someone who uses it and it enables them to not be in the worst throes of addiction. I'm not going to say they're trading one addiction for another. No way. Not the way to look at it. And if someone has a a severe addiction, so with the substance use disorder, addiction doesn't exist anymore. We have substance use disorders. So someone who is a severe, who reads six out of the 11 criteria, if they walk that back to a three or four, I'm going to say that's a win. That's maybe what it needs to be in recovery for that person. So at the end of the day, my sense, my feeling is that everyone gets to be an expert on his or their own addiction and should be well positioned to make decisions about what that looks like and how they live it. Of course, it gets complicated by the legal system, for example. So I have profound respect for drug courts. Good drug courts are, are life-saving, but they're all abstinence-based. It's been, a, it's been a, a long haul for medication-assisted therapies to be included in many drug courts because of that view. Well, it's still opioids. It's still, you're, you're, you're swapping there. But I think drug courts can be incredibly helpful for people. And I know that some professions require abstinence of a certain sort. So there are all those kinds of tricky things where there are going to be times when one model is going to dominate if you intersect with the legal or medical system. Yeah. And I do agree that word relapse. I also call it collecting data. Yep. We're collecting data. What works for you? Because that's how my journey was and that's why your your book Higher Powers resonated so much with me because it was, what do I like from here? What do I take from there? And it was, you know, it it's almost I was putting the ingredients together to see what was going to work, what was going to satisfy my soul. Yes. And so I love this part that you said that there is multiple paths out of addiction and no one is the best one. But then also. Why needs in recovery change over time? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So that was me. So that's how I ended up going to some AA meetings after 20 years sober. I had kind of just started taking my sobriety as a fact of the matter, taking it for granted. No, I don't. I just don't drink. I will never drink. And I realized that I wasn't being properly attentive to my own self. I felt like I was losing myself again. So I knew I'd already lost myself once as I developed that addiction as a, as a young teenager into a young adulthood. And everything in my life was, was going great. I, I had everything. And I woke up one morning and I didn't recognize myself. I didn't recognize my own life. I thought, wait a minute, how did I get here? What, what am I doing? Something needs to change because I feel like I've lost myself. Who am I? I, I don't know who I am or why I'm doing the things I'm, do- I'm doing them. I was functioning, I'd say, on a very high autopilot, which autopilot has its functions and its uses, but you can't be on it all the time. And so that's when I started going to AA. And AA still didn't fit me, but it connected me up with people who helped me to think more about my recovery. And that was actually when I started working professionally on addiction issues was after I had been sober a good 20 years and 
I finally thought, why am I not working on addiction issues? Because they're so central to philosophy in terms of meaning of life questions and transforming suffering and making sense of suffering. That's the bread and butter of philosophy. So for me, it was this great opportunity of these different parts of me that had been largely cordoned off from each other, not any kind of hostile way, but just kind of habitually matter of fact. Suddenly I thought, wow, these two things really go together in a kind of way. And I am so grateful for that. I am so grateful because I have found people struggling with addiction are some of the most philosophical people I have ever met in my entire life. And that is so important, you know, including all the pointy-headed academics at philosophy conferences that I go to sometimes when I think, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But I get into an AA meeting where it is real and people are asking, am I the same person I was back when I was using? Or I'm, I'm struggling with, with self-forgiveness. I'm struggling with holding on to resentments. Why am I doing these things? And I kept thinking, oh my gosh, this is such a philosophical question. I need to think about it. So my saying in that book, we need to be nimble and flexible about our own recovery, is that people can go and collect more data because we think, well, we've been sober for so long, we don't have those same intense cravings again. You know, we don't get knocked flat on our rear ends, but we're susceptible to a different kind of craving, I think. When nostalgia kicks in and we have kind of blue-tinted glasses thinking, well, I'll be as great as I am and I'll have everything that I have now and I'll get to enjoy you know, a nice cocktail or a cold motion golden ale or something like that. You know, we imagine our lives, what they'll be like. That's a kind of craving, but it doesn't get recognized as such because cravings, oh yeah, it's these strong physiological or psychological responses to stimuli where you have associated ideas of like, if it's one kind, but not all kinds. But if you think that's the only kind, then you're not going to recognize that you are, as I said in there, the um the victim of a long con. You're you're the victim of your own sobriety Ponzi scheme. I don't know how else to describe it. No, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Also, there was another question that I wanted to ask, which I thought was very interesting. Are some people more susceptible to addiction? Yeah, I think some people are for the following reasons. On the one hand, Addiction is an equal opportunity condition in that no one is immune to it. You cannot addiction-proof your child. You cannot addiction-proof your sibling. No one is immune to it. So it's equal on that. It's unequal when you take a look at the ways in which traumatic experiences can contribute to one being more susceptible to addiction. And when you unpack what might be included in traumatic experiences or the category was adverse childhood experiences, um, that some people, because of their material realities, their socioeconomic status, their religious background, might be more susceptible to addiction because, frankly, more cards in the deck are stacked against them. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Also, what are the barriers that people face when seeking treatment for addiction? Oh my gosh, there, there are so many barriers. So one deeply personal one is shame. You know, how do I admit that I need help? How am I going to go to, do I go to my doctor? Oh, that assumes I have a doctor who will see me, right? That I have a primary care physician. That's a big assumption. Where do I even begin to look for help? I don't even know what kind of help I might need. I don't know what the different treatment modalities are. I don't know if I need treatment to begin with. I don't know if, oh gosh, do I have insurance? Okay, I have employee-based insurance. Will that cover it? Well, no, not sure. With the Affordable Care Act, well, it should, but, and, um, you know, I live in rural Minnesota, which is pretty much of a treatment desert. So in many parts of the country, there's just nothing available. The only thing available is AA. And so AA becomes, many physicians just recommend their patients go to AA. And some patients will do very well, and other patients will struggle for some of the reasons that we were 
talking about. Um, and with employer-based insurance, there's a worry that, will I lose my job? I know legally I shouldn't lose my job, but let's just say I don't get the shifts anymore or I'm always the one who gets the terrible shift and it turns out I have kids. So all those barriers, we do not make it easy as a culture, as an economy to get treatment. And the amount of money that we have available for treatment is abysmally low. And the amount of money that we dedicate to try to prevent addiction is abominably low. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. That is incredible insight as to why a lot of people that might be listening to us and, and this may resonate with them, everything that you're saying as far as holding them back from taking the next step forward. I wanted to ask you, because I read in, in the beginning of your book, how you had the manuscript for a long time and the, and the inspiration to finally put the book forth. What, how did that happen? What happened? What happened? I regard this this book as my problem child. And we all know we love the problem child the most. Okay, yes, they give us headaches. And yes, they challenge us in all kinds of ways. And this book existed in three different forms prior to its its final form. I had to give myself permission to write the book that I wanted to write and to write the book that really was for me and people like me, because I know we're out there. So those of us who really struggle with that notion of higher power. And I really wanted to introduce people to the American philosopher, William James, because he has so much to offer us. But it took me three different versions and multiple rejections from publishers. I threw it down. I'd put it away for years and then I'd come back to it and I'd put it away again. But with that, with that final round, to just kind of say, I'm going for it. I'm going to write what I want to write, write what I think is good and helpful and productive for people. I'm not going to frame it in terms of AA. I want this book to be for people who may never go to AA, but who may get something out of all that William James has to offer. And for people who do go to AA, if Bill Wilson says that William James is a co-founder, it's always good to know your history. So I knew I was trying to thread a tiny needle with a tiny, tiny, tiny little eye of of audience. But I decided I'm I'm going to do it. And I had the good fortune of working with a fantastic editor who, who got it right away. That was a gift. Yeah. It, it, thank you for that explanation. Thank you. I mean, it comes across in the beginning of your book how how it was written, but it, it was so beautiful. I just it really impacted me when you called it the problem child and that you shelved it and you brought it back. So thank you so much for that explanation. Or is the zombie book, man, just, just kept coming back. Up. I don't know. Sometimes it, it felt like I have to write this. I have to get this out of my system. I, I felt like I needed an intellectual and spiritual Heimlich maneuver of this book. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's what it felt like. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you one final question. What would you like for the listener or for the person that is in early recovery to take away from your book? I would like for someone in that position to come to believe that they do have a higher power within them that they can find a higher power and that sometimes in the very beginning we need to, I describe people early in recovery and I describe myself this way as being like a hitchhiker. Sometimes you got to hitchhike on someone else's sobriety or you've got to hitchhike on their higher power. And I think there is great wisdom in saying, particularly for those of us who were atheist or agnostic or from different faith traditions, that sometimes the group can be your higher power. And that involves a certain kind of trust and that we who have struggled with addiction oftentimes lose trust in others 
and just as detrimentally lose trust in ourselves. And so to cultivate those tiny tendrils of trust in others and in yourself, that you will come to find a higher power and that you may find already within you a heaven, a life, a joy that is better than anything you have ever been able to imagine and that you can make it real by what you do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Where can we find your book, Higher and Friendly Powers by Peg O'Connor? You can find it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can order it through your local independent bookstore. Yay, if you happen to have one of those. Um, and you can order it off my website, which is pegoconnorauthor.com. And there you'll find other things that I've written, other interviews, other other things that might be of interest to you. Anything that might be of interest to you, I hope that you find it useful. That's you always my goal is to to write or say something that's useful. That's beautiful. We'll have the, also the links to your book on our website. Oh, thanks. With the interview. So that way it'll make it one click easy to get to because your book is just beautifully written. Well, thank, thank you so much for this gift. Well, thank you for the gift of this interview, but for the gift of Sober Town. I mean, you are creating a community. You are creating a, a spirit, a sense, uh, a communion in the ways that you described. I mean, this is what the ninth step promises are of AA, or this is what William James calls, you know, reaping the practical fruits of the spiritual tree. We get to do this. How lucky are we? And we get to live with an attitude of profound gratitude for, for what we have and what we can do. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. doesn't mean we're not going to suffer, but we're going to be okay. I think that that's exactly it. Happiness. I always say to myself, happiness and sadness are always fleeting. As long as we can be somewhere in that zen, peaceful place. Mm -hmm. And sobriety is what gives us that. If you said it. Matter. Thank you. <laughs> So it has been my pleasure to interview you. It has been my pleasure to read your book. And listeners out there, if you have a chance, please, please do yourselves a favor and pick up Peg's book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Thank you so much, Peg. Thank you, Viv.